We are capping off today a wonderful series on Luke 15. Three weeks that we spent at the end of today in Luke chapter 15. Doubt you've ever done that before. Three powerful stories that Jesus has told us. And so as we uh, get to the pinnacle, the mountaintop today, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Um, We've sung about it all morning, the fact that you are good, that you call us into relationship with yourself, and that uh, you even provided atonement, forgiveness for us, uh, so that we might enter into relationship with you freely. As we talk about that today, Lord, as we plumb the, the depths and through this very popular story that Jesus told, story of the prodigal son, I pray, God, that you might uh, do something in our hearts and minds today that at the very least gives us joy and at the very most calls us home. And so, Lord, would you do that in our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, up to this point in our short little vision series that we've been in that we've entitled Search and Rescue, we've seen that God invites us initially to join His rescue efforts by aligning our hearts with Him and getting on board with how He feels about lost people. Do you remember that from week one? It was that parable of the lost sheep, that God cares about lost sheep, He goes after them, and we should care as well. And then we've further seen that God actually calls us not to just join his rescue efforts, but then to become the rescue efforts. That's what last week was about, that when we look at Jesus' second story, that of the lost coin, he actually calls us, the church, to engage in the search and rescue process as well, to be used by him to find lost coins. And today, as I mentioned in my prayer, we get to the pinnacle, the mountaintop, the summit of Jesus' is three stories here in Luke 15, and we're now confronted with a clarion call from Jesus for all of us to experience the rescue efforts. So see the progression here. Join God's heart, become a part of it, but then even experience it ourselves if we haven't already by volitionally identifying with one of three characters that Jesus is going to present to us in this final story of his. The story of the prodigal son, as I mentioned, is a story that like almost all Americans are familiar with, right? I mean, it's just told around campfires and to our kids and even in educational systems. I mean, it's a very, very common story. The story of a young father who has two sons and they're working the farm and the one son, the younger one, who's kind of bratty, says, Dad, I want to leave the farm. Give me my inheritance early. And as we're going to see, the father gives him his inheritance. He goes off and spends the money on wine, women, and song, comes back a pitiful wreck, and the father receives him back. The father receives him back into relationship, as we're going to see, with full acceptance and restoration, showing the grace of God. As we're going to see how God wants to receive prodigal sons and daughters back into relationship with himself. But the story doesn't end there. Remember how it ends? The older brother gets what? gets ticked, right? He's mad. He's going, Dad, that's not fair. That's not just. I mean, this kid shouldn't be able to come home and and completely free and clear. There should be some consequences. And Jesus tells that part of the story to show how the religious leaders of his day were viewing those whom God was accepting into the kingdom. And so you got three players in this story that we're asked to identify with. Pick one. Two of them positive, one of them negative. You're either the tax collector, you're either the, the lost son who were the tax collectors and sinners of Jesus' day that God is calling home, or you might be a Pharisee and a scribe, the, the older son in Jesus' story, who's judgmental and bitter, or you might even be the father. 
Though the Father here represents God, the subtle implication here is that we need to also be like God in receiving lost prodigals back into the fold and sharing in the joy as they come home. Three characters that we can all understand and relate to. Three experiences that living this side of heaven can offer us. And we're told that two of these can bring life while one will do nothing but keeping you mired in your self-righteousness and your judgmentalism along with a lack of peace and joy. And so to best understand and get what Jesus is talking about in this story, I want to break it down in our time remaining today, into bite-sized chunks and understand the different movements of this story. Because when you look close, there's three of them. Three of them that help us fully get what Jesus is saying here in this very, very well-known story in Luke 15. So look up here on the screen. Here's the first movement, and that is that the sun rebels, right? The sun rebels. And so look at how Jesus begins this story in verses 11 to 13 of Luke chapter 15. It says, And he, Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country where he squandered his estate with loose living. So don't miss here, folks, that the younger son asks, packs, departs, and squanders. If you can remember those four things, that's what the younger son does. He asks, he packs, he departs, and then he squanders. And so you got this wealthy Jewish landowner, and we know this because it talks about the share of an estate. We know this guy had to be kind of wealthy compared to the rest of his culture because it also talks about the fact that this man had slaves and hired men and expensive things like robes and expensive rings and really nice shoes. All things indicative in that culture at being kind of a cut above the rest on a material level. I mean, when you think about it, he's kind of the quintessential Scottsdale person. Could that be okay to say? I mean, people see Scottsdale, obviously, from around our nation as kind of, on a material level, a cut above the rest, right? And so for those of us who live in Scottsdale or Paradise Valley or North Phoenix or wherever, I mean, the reality is, is that we're seen like that. We can relate to this story of the prodigal son. And so blessed with two sons, the younger of the two asks his father for his share of the estate. Please realize, folks, quite a rude thing to do. In any culture, really, but especially in first century Jewish culture, it was an insult to ask your father for your inheritance like before he was dead. And yet that's what's happening here. And though Jesus does not tell us exactly why the younger son wanted to leave so badly, most experts on the Bible assume that it had something to do with him wanting to be free and, from his father, and out from under his father's control, right? I mean, he thought life would be better without the burdens of home and control of his father. And so being a gracious man, his father gives his son a portion of the estate, most likely not half because a larger portion would go to the older brother, uh, according to Old Testament law and Jewish tradition, but enough to set this young man up so that he might be able to make something of his life. And it says that at this point, the son packs and leaves, and it is here that things really go south. Two things that you don't want to miss that show us here that, that are really critical for you and I today. First, it says that he goes to a distant country. Did you notice that in verse 13 there? It says that he goes to a distant country. Now get this, most likely a non-Jewish Gentile country. 
I mean, almost surely that's what it's referring to. A place where any of the values of his Jewish upbringing were now gone. All the values that he was raised with are now not a part of his immediate culture in this distant country. And so let's be pointed about it. It'd be like you and me going to Vegas or Hollywood or New Orleans or any of the other decadent cities that you could think of today, right? I mean, that's what it's trying to get at here. That's what Jesus is saying. He goes to a place where he can party hard. And then it says that he squandered his estate on loose living. Fascinating. That word squandered here literally means to scatter everywhere. So picture this guy kind of like somebody would do at a casino, going from the slot machines to the roulette tables to the poker games to the blackjack games and then back to the slot machines. I mean, he's just scattering his money foolishly everywhere. And yet obviously there weren't casinos back then. And so Jesus said he scattered his money on loose living or wild living, as the NIV translation says. And we can only imagine, folks, what he did. I mean, free from his father's control, he probably engaged in the old wine, women, and song, living some hedonistic lifestyle, pursuing any pleasure that his heart had. And so let's just pause here and note that this is what this kid did. And I would simply point out to you that this is not all that unusual of a story in a fallen world. Amen? I mean, take away the asking for the inheritance part, and quite frankly, you've got a story that's been told over and over and over again in the countless lives of millions down through the ages, and even happening in a lot of people's lives today. I mean, think about it, folks. I mean, there are many people who are in relatively safe and nurturing environments, and due to going off to college or having a midlife crisis or going through some catastrophic change in their circumstances, like a job loss or losing a loved one, they leave their safe environment and pursue pleasures and fulfillment that at the very best are risky and at the very most are sinful and downright wrong. It's a pretty common story, quite frankly, in a fallen world in which you have a lot of fallen people. And so you got to ask yourself, once you get this, once you get what Jesus is saying and how common this is in our lives, why? I mean, why is it that people do this? Why is it that they do something that is so seemingly foolish and life-altering? Why do people do this? And the answer is very simple, and it brings us to our practical point here this morning. Look up here on the screen, and it's simply this, and that is that people distance themselves from God because they believe that life will be more fulfilling on their own. It's true. You don't want to miss this. I mean, Jesus is telling us a story here in which he's trying to compare life on earth with how it it happens in our relationship with God. And so the practical point that we take away from this is just as the son thought that he'd do better from outside the father's control, there are many people today who do that. And they do that because they really think that life might be more fulfilling or workable on our own. And so when it comes to our relationship with God, think about how many people do this today. I mean, I thought of business people that I know who feel that with God at the center, it just might cost them that needed promotion, or it might have them, might cause them to have to be totally honest about the next sale, and so it's better to choose success rather than to choose God, right? I know people like that, so do you. Or it's the artist or musician friend of yours who feels that the confines of God's Word and His value system for our lives just might stifle creativity, right? And so he or she moves in a direction artistically that is certainly not godlike. 
Or how about the athlete who senses that submitting to Christ in personal relationship is going to make one weak? You ever heard that before? In other words, it might take the edge off of that anger that, that drives an athlete. So, hey, why submit to Christ now? I'm going to wait till my athletic career is over. I know people like that. Or most common, all of us know people like this. How about the student who goes off to school and says, finally, freedom. Freedom for my Christian family and that straight-laced church called Scottsdale Bible Church. Finally, I get to do what I want to do. And they do. I mean, you and I know countless scenarios in our lives in which people convince themselves that they just might do better, even feel better, even find life more workable without God so front and center in our lives. And the point that we don't want to miss as well is that maybe even some of us do this at times in our lives too, right? Maybe some of us become straying prodigals in our lives because we feel that God or that life might be better without God. You know, folks, I got to tell you, even though I'm a pastor and I don't run from God all that often, and you'd be bummed out if I did, I got to tell you, I, I can relate to this. I mean, before I bent the knee to Christ, I can clearly remember thinking how confining and even backward Christianity and the Bible seemed. I mean, people would try to share their faith with me, and i think, man, are you ever raining on my parade or what? I mean, why bring these things to my life that just confine me and hem me in? I mean, why would you want to do something like that? What, is God some cosmic killjoy or something? And I can remember after I accepted Christ, and I shared this with you guys before, I felt such incredible freedom in my life. And that's the flip side, as we're going to see, is that there's actually more joy to be found by staying home on the farm with God. I can remember some of my friends, when I accepted Christ, thought, what, are you crazy? I mean, you're going to take all the fun away out of our lives. And they couldn't believe it. Folks, listen, it's a story of pride all over again played out in millions of upon millions of scenarios, transcending all times and cultures. It goes all the way back to that very first experience in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve truly thought that life would be better by doing what? Eating the forbidden fruit, right? They thought they'd do better than God. And they thought that they could do life more on their own, even though God said it wouldn't work. The grass seems greener on the other side at times, even when deep down we know better. Don't miss this. This is the mindset of lost prodigals. We truly think that life will be more fulfilling with either God marginalized off to the side or out of the picture entirely. And yet the reality is, is that we all know it's just not true. In fact, it's a lie. Life is never fulfilling with God marginalized in one's life. And though it might seem virus-free for a time, a bug always works itself in. Amen? I mean, eventually you wake up. And that's the second movement, by the way, of this story. And don't you love it? And that is, look up here on the screen, and that is that the sun returns. The sun returns. So we, first we see the sun rebel. Life can work more without God. But then after time, and this always proves true, the sun returns. Look at what Jesus says in verses 14 to 20. It says, he says, Now when he, meaning the younger son, had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. Pause real quickly right there. If you underline in your Bible, underline that phrase, to be in need. If you use the ESV version, it's the same thing, to be in need. You're going to want to hang on to that phrase. We'll get to it in a minute. And then Jesus says, and he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine or pigs. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, 
He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. Now, folks, when you look closely here, there are two significant turning points. Only two things that I need you to see that made all the difference in the son's return and that will make the difference in our lives as well. And the first one occurs in that phrase that I asked you to underline when it says that he began to be in need. Look at that there again in verse 14. He began to be in need. As we're going to see in just a minute here, folks, need always carries with it the capacity to wake one up and get one thinking about priorities and options. Have you found that yet in life? It's really true. I mean, when you hit rock bottom and you get in need, by the very nature of it, it causes you to say, hmm, what are my options here, and what things have I not been prioritizing that I need to prioritize? And so check it out. This younger son in Jesus' story spends all he had, which really took some doing, by the way. And then he experiences the effects of a famine in this faraway country. In other words, the economy kind of turned down. And so he gets a job feeding pigs. And you got to remember, this is a Jewish kid. They probably didn't even have pigs back on their farm back then due to purity laws from the Old Testament. And he's now feeding pigs. And then to show how rock bottom this kid really hit, Jesus said that he longed to eat the pods that the swine were eating. You see it there in verse 16? Long to eat the pods. And some of you are saying, what's that about? I mean, I know what an iPod is, but what's a, a pod, right? Uh, look up here on the screen. Give me a click here, guys. Uh, what most Bible experts point out from our understanding of the first century is that these pods here were actually bean pods from a carob tree. And some of you are saying, big whip. What are those about? What you need to know is that these were sweet, nasty little plants that the poorest of poor didn't even want to eat back then. I mean, what Jesus is trying to show us here is that this is bad. This is rock bottom. You can't get much lower than eating bean pots from a carob tree because it was pig food back then. It was what you fed to your animals, not what you fed to human beings. And so to put it in contemporary language here, if Jesus was to tell this story today, he might use this as an example. Give me another click here. That's the idea, right? I mean, it's dog food. It's dog food that Jesus is talking about that this prodigal who had hit rock bottom was now eating. And, you know, some of you are saying, Jamie, that's gross. But think about it. I mean, outside of the odd high school kid that likes to impress people at parties by eating dog food and saying he likes it, remember that from high school? Outside of that, nobody likes to eat dog food. Amen? Nobody does. I got three dogs. And when we feed them in the morning, I look at that food and I'm saying, I'm glad they're eating it, not me, right? Because it's gross stuff fit for dogs, right? And I know that offends some of you because your dogs are like your next thing to a human being, but just see it in context there, right? I mean, it's dog food. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here, is that these are, this is a kind of rock bottom that is reserved for very few people. And in hitting rock bottom, don't miss, he begins to be in need. Now hold on to that and notice this, that this need then led to a second thing that led to the transformation here. And that is in verse 17, it says that he came to his senses. He came to his senses. This phrase in the original language could be most woodenly translated, he came into consciousness. Don't miss this. It carries with it a sense that this kid woke up. 
And so in hitting this rock-bottom place and then sensing his need, the next thing that happens immediately in his heart and mind is that he wakes up. And that's exactly, folks, what happens with prodigals who hit rock-bottom. That stemming from their need, they wake up and they say, I think I need to return home. And sure enough, that's what this young kid does. He makes a plan to return back to the Father and even develops an additional plan of penance and self-atonement. He says, I'm going to get up, go to my Father, confess my sin, confess my unworthiness, and ask to be like one of his hired men. Fascinating. There were two kinds of servants back then. Hired men and slaves or servants. Servants or slaves lived with the family that they were serving. Hired men were just day laborers, kind of a notch lower because they were not under the protection of that family. And so this kid develops a plan in which he says, I want to become like one of the lowest of my father's hired people. And that way, my father just might accept me back. Don't miss this, folks. He senses a need. He comes to his senses, develops a plan of self-atonement. And from this then, here's the second key practical point that we must take home here this morning and for the rest of our lives. And that is that the turning point then for you and me when it comes to God is always recognizing need, now get this, demonstrated by repentance. Demonstrated by repentance. Now bear with me here, because I know it gets quiet at this point in the message, because none of us like that word repentance. And so I want to explain very clearly what I mean by this word, and I think it's going to make some sense to you. Uh, Folks, when prodigals are on their way back home, as far as I'm reading it here in Jesus' story, as well as in the rest of the New Testament, two things must invariably happen. As we've seen, the first thing that needs to happen is that they need to sense a need in their life that they've been ignoring up to this point, right? I mean, that's just like a big duh. They need to sense a need for relationship, for forgiveness, for wholeness, for faith, for righteousness. They need to sense a need for God. And yet because need alone does not necessarily bring one home, think about it, need must always be acted on with some form of movement, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be an outward behavioral thing. Many times people define repentance as only that. I mean, many times it can be an inward heart attitude type of thing. But as far as I'm reading the story here, some form of movement needed to happen. I mean, all of us know people in our lives who sense a need for something, but if they never act on that need, then it's just empty need, right? It gets them nowhere. And so once you understand this, that need has to be followed up and demonstrated by some sort of movement or repentance, the key question becomes, what action or movement in the form of repentance is God looking for in need-filled prodigals, right? That becomes the key question. And I would challenge you to be very, very careful how you answer this question. Because many well-meaning believers today don't answer this question all that accurately, correctly, or even intelligently, and they greatly muddy the waters for returning prodigals as a result. And yet what is so awesome about the story before you and I here this morning is that Jesus, I believe, answers the question as to exactly what kind of movement or repentance God is looking for in returning prodigals and those of us who want to return into right relationship with him. And he also shows us what God is not looking for in our repentance. And so let me share with you a few things right now that God is not looking for that might help clear up some things and free us up. First, it's interesting that God is not looking for some sort of penance or self-atonement plan when it comes to our repentance. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the son developed his own plan of penance, as we've already seen, right? 
He says, I'm going to do all these good works. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to earn my Father's love back. And we're going to see the Father wants none of that. That is not going to be part of how the Father defines the repentance, the movement that he's looking for. And then fascinating, secondly, uh, repentance here is not defined as a promise that you'll never struggle or sin again or even stray again. I mean, there's no mention of that at all in the story. And it's not even that you'll somehow pay back all the wrong that you've done and make it all right. I mean, there's no mention here that the son attempted to pay back the inheritance he squandered. He couldn't. And so the repentance doesn't mean any of that stuff. No, what Jesus makes clear in this story to us here is that the primary mode of repentance that the father wanted, now don't miss this, was for the son to simply come home. In other words, he wanted the son to turn from where he had been going, make his way back home, now don't miss this, in relationship with his father. So we're going to see the father wanted relationship with the son. And the only way that was going to happen was for the son to return home to the father. And so the form of repentance that the father was looking for was simply for the son to come home in relationship. That marked the repentance. Folks, I love how Joel Green, one of the foremost authorities on the Gospel of Luke, alive today, and a professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary says it. He says it so profound, so simply. Look up here on the screen. I think we got it. And that is, he says, the return is the repentance. Let me repeat that. You don't want to miss this. The return of the Son is the repentance. Not good works. Not some self-atonement plan. But the simple fact that the son turned toward home, made his way back home in relationship with the father, is the repentance. And so you're asking, what does this have to do with me and God? Well, folks, what God is looking for more than anything else in us when we stray, now get this, is a sense of need for him and the life that he offers. In other words, a life marked by forgiveness and righteousness and relationality and faith backed up then by a repentance, but it's repentance in the form of coming home to him in faith and trust through Jesus Christ. That's what God is looking for. Not a bunch of good works, not self-atonement. The Father didn't want any of that, but a turning from the life that you had been pursuing and a movement toward God that's marked by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. It's a relational thing that marks the repentance. And what I love about this truth, once you get it, what I love about this spiritual reality is that once you understand this, it makes no difference how far one has strayed. It makes no different, difference how rock bottom your life has hit. It's all the same. It's all about need, demonstrated by repentance as defined by a turning toward home through faith and trust in Christ. And when this happens, when you turn toward home, but when you turn toward God in your mind and your heart through receiving Christ and through doing business with him through belief and faith, what the Bible says is that the third movement of this story now becomes real for you. And I love this. It's my favorite. The son rebels. The son returns. Now get this. And the father receives. The father receives. I mean, talk about grace. Look at how Jesus wraps up this this third movement of the story. There's more, but this is how it wraps up the, kind of the mountaintop of it. He says in verses 20 to 24, but wow, he, the younger son, was still a long way off. His father saw him, now get this, and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put him on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead. He's come back to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to be merry. Very quickly, because we're about out of time here, notice two things that mark the father's reception. Notice the things of acceptance and restoration that are core to the Father's actions here. Acceptance and restoration. I mean, notice that the Father totally accepted the Son back. It says that he felt compassion for him, that he ran to him. I mean, can you picture this older, dignified Jewish guy running through the streets of the city like some schoolboy kid? And he embraces him and he kisses him right there for everybody to see the servants and the hired people all watching. Total acceptance. And then not stopping there in an unheard of move that would later cause the older son to get real ticked, he restores this returning son, now don't miss this, to a place of complete sonship. That's what he does. I mean, he goes out and he gets the best robe and a ring and, and nice shoes. And then he, he affirms him and says, you're now my son once again. And he gets a fatted calf that they're saving for the best celebration of the year. And he kills it and he says, let's have a party. And with words of profound affirmation, giving us two word pictures here. He says, my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Acceptance and restoration mark the father's reception. And it wasn't based on penance. It wasn't based on self-atonement. It was based on the return. The return is the repentance. And when we do that, God receives us back fully. I love how Chuck Swindoll says it in his book, The Grace Awakening. He says, when you finally understand this aspect of God and his grace, it becomes scandalous. You say to yourself, it can't be. God cannot be that good. He cannot be that forgiving. He doesn't know what I've done. Isn't that a dumb thing to say, by the way, when you find yourself saying that? He doesn't know what I've done. He's God, believe me. He knows what you've done. And he knows what's been in your heart, but he knows now what's happening in you, that you're returning back home, that your heart is tender, that truth is setting in. And he knows that the return is the repentance and he receives us back into relationship with him. And he says to us, you know what? There's going to be plenty of time to work the farm and get back on the road of recovery. And believe me, you will. But for now, there is celebration as one who has now been found and brought back into life. Folks, I love this truth about God. And yet the, cling, the, the ringing challenge that you and I need to wrestle with today is do we love it as well? I mean, do we love it if we're returning prodigals? And do we love it even if we're ones who have never strayed? Because as you all know, Jesus ends this story on an incredible challenge to me and you when it comes to who we're going to identify with, right? I mean, you remember how the story ends. We don't have time to read it, but the story ends by the older brother getting all ticked, right? I mean, the older brother basically says, Dad, this isn't fair. I mean, the, the kid's getting off scot-free. He's not having to pay anything else back. He's not feeling any displeasure from you right now. I mean, you're receiving him back with a full embrace. I've stayed here. I've worked the farm. You never gave me a fatted calf. You never gave me the ring, the robe, and the shoes. I mean, what gives? And God's trying to say, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Can't you share in the joy of a lost one who is now found? You were never lost. You stayed on the farm. You worked it. That's good. I love you, God says. I'm happy that you're here. I'm happy that in your church, I'm happy you're going to Bible study. I'm happy that you're serving God. I'm happy that you're giving. I'm happy that you're doing all the things that I'm calling you to do. But can't you rejoice that a lost one is now found? And what a great challenge to me and you. Because the reality is, 
is that the longer many of us hang around church, tell me if this isn't true, we get kind of curmudgeon-like. Have you ever noticed that? We get kind of stayed in our values, and we, we start to do this more in church. Instead of doing this, we do this. Have you ever noticed that? Some of you are crossing your arms like, oh, sorry, Jamie, I won't do that anymore. But anyways, we tend to do this, right? We tend to cross our arms, and, 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 and you know, when, when, when things happen in church, we kind of look at it like this, right? You know, and maybe somebody comes in that didn't like us, or, or, or heaven forbid, somebody might come to Christ that isn't like us, and we look at them and go, well, well, that's good, but I hope they change. They better change, right? Better give up them sinful ways, you know, and we kind of look at them cross-eyed. Before you know it, what are we? Judgmental, self-righteous, Pharisee-like, and we're the older brother. Without even trying to be that way, we're identifying more with the older brother than we are with the lost prodigal or the father that shares in the joy of the return. And that's Jesus' point. He says out of three characters, I'd like all of you people to identify with two of them and avoid the third. Either identify with the lost prodigal and come home, or identify with the father who shares in the joy and is all about grace. As we wrap up here today, we're going to wrap up on that note. We're going to give you a chance to respond and identify with those two individuals in the story here. First, if I don't miss my guess, there are some of us here today that need to identify with the prodigal son or daughter who needs to return. Amen? I mean, as we already established earlier, it's a very common tale in today's culture. And when you think about it, there's two types of prodigals that need to come home. Now, bear with me. Listen close to this. The first type of prodigal are those who have never come home yet into right relationship with God, right? In church circles, we call this salvation. In other words, you, you thought you knew God, but upon further reflection, you realize it was just kind of an American way of saying I'm a liberal believer in God, but you've never really established a personal relationship with Jesus Christ marked by joy, hope, and a known assurance of eternal life. You've never come home in that way. In other words, you've never come to believe and accept Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. And we're going to give you a chance to do that in just a minute. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to ask you in just a minute here to make your way down front here and, uh, and to receive Christ with me. I will help guide you in that for the very, very first time, to be a prodigal who comes home into relationship with God. Remember, the return is the repentance. But then I think there's another type of prodigal, and tell me if this isn't true, that might be you here today, and that is that you came home before, like you might have accepted Christ when you're five or through your teen years or whatever, but over the years, you've kind of wandered, right? Like that lost sheep or that lost coin, or to put it in Jesus' terms today, you've left the farm again. I know that I've been like that at times, where I came home, but then I, I left again. And the reality is, is that God wants you to return as well. We call it recommitting your life to Christ or reestablishing a relationship with Him. And we're going to invite you down as well. And to help both of you returning prodigals here today, you'll notice that I have some baskets down here. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to come down, and if you are a prodigal who is returning for uh, not the very first time, but as a recommitment, I'd like you to grab a yellow bookmark that has today's date on it. We want you to mark this day. It's a good thing to do as a day that you return to God. And if you're receiving Christ for the very first time today, if you're a prodigal that's coming home for the first time, we'd like you to grab this gray bookmark here that also has today's date on as a symbol, as a sign of your spiritual birthday, the day that you came home to God. 
for the very first time by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. We'd like you to grab one of these two bookmarks and then stay down here uh, for prayer, okay? So we're going to play a video in a minute, and during that video, we're going to invite any of you that, that want to come home to God to, to come down, grab a ribbon uh, or a bookmark, and then stay down here for prayer, okay? And uh, I will lead you in prayer as we close the service. Now, one last thing. For those of you who rightly feel that you're already home, and that you've stayed home and worked the farm and been establishing your relationship with God and that you're not a prodigal that needs to return, can I encourage you during this time to share in the joy of your brothers and sisters who are coming home? In other words, can I encourage you to be the father? To sit there and and as you watch this video and as you watch your brothers and sisters come forward, just share in the joy. Use it as a worshipful moment to focus on your heavenly Father and see how that prepares you for the week ahead. See how that causes you to view all those around you in your week and even to get a sense of God's heart for his lost ones who come home. Let's all worship in this moment. Let's all focus on Christ. This is an intimate moment. Let's enter into it in that way. Why don't you bow with me and pray? Father God, um, I thank you that You are a God of immense grace, far more than we'd ever realize. And that though you are a God of justice, you meted out that justice, our sin, through Jesus on the cross. And God, I thank you that you sent Jesus because without him, we'd have no chance to know you in the way that you want us to know you. So Father, I pray that as there'll be some who come forward here right now to receive your son Jesus for the very first time, as first returning prodigals, but then some who are going to reestablish their relationship with your son Jesus, that God, they would feel your joy, that they would feel the reception that you give, that you promised in your word here at returning prodigals. Lord, for the rest of us who might remain in our seat, but remain as committed followers of Jesus who are, are walking with you, I pray, God, that we would stand or sit here as ones who are sharing the Father's joy, not the Son's judgmentalism. And that, Father, you would give us the joy of our salvation that might carry us throughout this week and in the months and years ahead. God, thank you for your goodness. Be with us in this intimate moment, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.